This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Good evening, everybody. This is not mine. Oy, 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 oy. Okay. Who spoke for me last week? Oh, there was no show last week because of the weather. Okay, so Baruch Hashem, I was in Eretz Yisrael last week. I felt very bad that I wasn't here to give a share, but you had like bad weather from what I hear, and you didn't have a share. So we have to make up this week for last week. I'd like to say hello. There's a lot of, we're on live actually, um, all over the world. Some new, some new places that are listening to uh, our share Wednesday nights. Edmonton um, in, in Canada, um, St. Louis, Chicago, Detroit, Muncie, Lakewood, Baruch Hashem, and of course Montreal, um, Passaic, um, it's really just spreading all over the place, Dallas is watching, I, I heard today, so Baruch Hashem, we're in here, but there's a lot of people out there that are, that are really together with us at the Shir, so I want to thank everybody um, that's watching. That's watching this year. We're learning from Malki Yehudas Bas Chai Sara, Avram Tzvi Ben Moshe, for Rufu Shalema, for it says Uvdu Ari Ben Mazel Asna Bat Uriel. First name. Yes. Right. It's how you say that. Uvda. Uvda Ari. Uvda Ari. Uvda Ari Ben Mazel. Asna Bachavi, Shmuel Ben Esther, Yisrael Meir Ben Daphne Bruria, Meir Miki Ben, Sharatami Beda, Sari Mindelbat, Ita Devora, Shirin Bamalka, Riza Bamalka, Bluma Bat Havalea, Pichas Ben Ita, Pichas Ben Bloria, Ifadara Bat Bloria, thank you. Yero Ben Bloria, Rashalina Bat Luba, Shlame Bat Zulaya, Farel Ben Sara, Riva Batjin Chababat, Ifadora, Gloria Rosa Bat Dina, Rocha Bat Henya Edel, Sara Bat Henya, so Sonia Bat Esther, Baruch Ben Larissa, Jadavid Ben Liba Zahava, Tzvi Gash Ben Shandel, Sarah Bat Nechama, Moshe Ben Zelda, Alexander Ben Rachel, and Tamar Bat Yoel. Baruch Menachem Ben? Devorah Leir. Devorah Leir. Ben Tzina, Pnina Pelina Bas Diana, Ilana Bas Lariot Kehaya, Chana Bat Ayela, Ayela Bat Shandel, Moshe Eliezer Ben Miriam, Bela Bas Malka, Dita Bas Edel, Tavitivit Bas Sarah, Chana Bas Rachel, Menachem Bas Sara, Ilana Bas Bele Nechama Arena, Nechama Dabe Bas Sara Nessel, Chana Basi Bas Sara Nessel, and Shirley Bas Sara. Um, where's Avivit? Not here. Where's Ruth? Not here. Okay. All right, a couple of announcements. Last week, Matzah Shabbos. Oh, I just asked, where's Ruth? Okay. She's here. Um, last week, we had um, Meet the Shachin. It was supposed to be Matzah Shabbos, but we didn't have it Matzah Shabbos because of the weather. So, it's going to be this Matzah Shabbos at 8.30. There are limited spots, so you have to sign up or email Daphne at Ornava.com. Rabbi Eliyahu Bergstein, in Mitzvah Hashem, Monday the 14th 
and the 28th. His subject is davening, more is good. Intro, introduction to mentoring with Ezra Max, February 22nd, which will continue in March and it will be a series. And Sababa, Mitzvah Hashem, February 19th. Motzi Shabbos, we're trying to get our Motzi Shabbosim going over here. So February 19th, Mitzvah Hashem, everybody is invited. What is Sababa? Sababa is some girls that put on music and uh, everybody dances with the music. So I, I, we had it last year, they, the girls enjoyed it very, very much. Jewish music, only Jewish music, no other music. Okay. This week's Pasha is Pasha's Truma. Last, yes, your names, I need your names. Whenever you're ready, I'll, I'll, I'll say them. Um, no, no problem. To be on time. Um, so, last week's Pasha was Pasha's Mishpatim. This week's Pasha is Pasha's Truma. At the end of Pasha's Mishpatim, um, Baruch Hu gave us the Luchos, the second set of Luchos, after the first set of Luchos was broken. This week's Pasha, they came out with a new book from Art Scroll. It's actually a remake of the old book, I think, on the Mishka Mikhailov. And this is the Pasha where Kirsh commands Klaisro to make the Mishkan. So let's look a little bit in Pasha's Truma, the beginning of the Pasha. The Pasha begins as follows. By Dabra Hashem Moshe Lema, Hashem said to Moshe, saying, Dabil Bene Yisrael, speak to the Klaisrael, to the Jews. The Yikhali Truma, they should take from me a portion. From every man whose heart motivates him, take my truma. And then the Torah goes on to say, what, what should you take? Zohav, gold, kesef, silver, nechoshes, copper, blue wool, purple wool, red wool, um, uh, what's it called? Hair of, of, of goats, skins, all kinds of different things. Oils. Okay. And then it says, Migdash, Make me a Midash and I will dwell amongst you. So the question is like this. What is what is this second Pasuk? He already said, tell the Bnei Yisrael that they should take from me a truma from every person whose heart motivates him. What's the tichu with truma? Again, take a truma. You already said take a truma. You said, v'yichuli truma. And the Pasuk repeats itself. It says, tichu with truma. So, v'yichuli truma me'eis kol ish is one. She take a truma from every person. But Hashem wants his heart. So what, what and then it says, make a migdosh, and I'll dwell in you. So the question is, what is this talking about? What does that mean? And why doesn't it just say, right? And then tell me Zahav Kesef and Nechoshes. So we learn from here something that's very important. We learn from here that what God wants from all of us is not the gold and the silver and the money and going through the motions of being a good Jewish girl. I mean, that's very important, but that's not the main point. The main, the main point 
is what God wants from all of us is our hearts. And last night I gave the boy Shir with an hour and 45 minutes. I'm not going to do that to you tonight. He got a little carried away last night. But, um, but the problem in our generation today is that we're very robotic. Everything we do, even eating, we don't chew our food, right? We eat, everything's fast. You make the food fast. The whole microwave idea of being able to put something into a microwave and push a button for one minute and the thing, and it's steaming. They try to take away as much work from the human being as possible today. There is no heart in the things that we do. We, we go through the motions, as I said many weeks ago, that everything is, we go through the motions, but not, not the emotions. So yes, you light candles for Shabbos, and, 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 and you do the mitzvahs that you have to do, but what Hashem wants from us is our hearts. And that's the one thing we don't give Him. And I'll, I'll give you an example of what I'm saying in a, in, in a few minutes. So the whole beginning of Pasha's Truma is, because Baruch Hu is telling Klai Yisrael, it's not the Mishkan, it's not the house, it's not the Beis Hamikdash, that, that, you have to have that. But what I want from you is your heart. And that's why the Pasuk tells us twice, Tichu es Trumasi. And then after Hashem names all the things that we bring, it says, V'asali Migdash, V'shachanti B'saycham. Make a Beis HaMigdash. Now what should it say, girls? Whoever knows Diktuk over here. I'm not such a Diktuk major. But what it should say is, V'asali Migdash, Build me a base on Migdash and I will dwell in it. The Socha in the base on Migdash. Build me a Mishkan and I will dwell in the Mishkan. That's not what the Pusik says. The Pusik says, Build me a base on Migdash and I will dwell in you. Where do you dwell in me? I built your house and you're dwelling in me? I built your house, you should dwell in the house. If you dwell in me, what do you need the house for? I built your house, why do you have to dwell in me? So this, this is a connection to the Yitzven Libo, that, that the house that Hashem wants every Jew, every girl and every boy and every Jew to build for Him is your heart. And where's your heart? It's not in a building. It's in you. And, and you know, many, many people are very easy and don't, I'm, not, I'm not belittling giving tzedakah and doing good deeds. And, and you know, and building a beautiful shul for $10 million dollars with marble and, and Arna Kodesh is another million dollars and spending all that money, but that's cold marble. Hashem wants a warm heart. He's not looking for cold stone, He wants a warm heart. And therefore, before you build the Mishkan, Hashem wants you to know, before you bring all this stuff to me, what I want is you, and the one thing I'm not getting is you. You know, I, I, I speak about this very often, so I, you know, I do a lot of Shalom bias with couples. And it's mamish, this Pusik is what goes on every, t- every single time I, I get involved. It's always the same story. They come to my house or to my office, and it's a husband and a wife who are not getting along very well, or they wouldn't need me. And I always let the, la- the young lady talk first, because ladies first, that's how I was brought up. And I say, okay, what's going on in your marriage? Why are you here? She says, Reverend Wallstein. We're married six years, we're married eight years, 15 years, two years, one year, four months. doesn't make a difference how long. And he does not love me. He doesn't love me. 
And every single time, every single man, no matter how old he is, has the same reaction to that comment. What? What are you talking about? What do you mean I don't love her? I say, well, if you think you love her, tell me, why does she feel that you don't love her? He's like, I don't know. Ask her. So I'm like, I'll just give a name. Chayla. What's going on? He's shocked by the statement that you're saying he doesn't love you. She says, he just doesn't show his feelings. He's just cold. He's, he's like marble. I just, he just, and every guy reacts the same way. I don't understand what she's talking about. Every Wallstein, I work like an animal all day and all week to pay the mortgage. I pay all her bills. Her Bloomingdale's card and her Saks card, I never complain. I pay all her credit cards and I pay the mortgage. How could you say I don't love her? And a chutzpah, she says, I don't love her. Two years ago, I bought her a brand new Honda. What do you mean I don't love her? And every girl and every woman says the same thing. I don't need your stupid credit card. Well, not like that, but. <laughs> Depends how long they're married. I don't need your stupid credit card and to pay the bills. My father took care of my credit cards when I was single and paid the bills. That's not why I got married. I need you. And every guy like, we don't know what that means. Well, you have me. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm there. And she's like, no, you're not there. You come home and you're on the phone and you're not there. And everything you want to spend time with except for me. And, and the guy doesn't get it. But he's like, but I'm such a good husband. I mean, I take care of everything. I drive the kids to school. I mean, I take care of everything. That's true. But your heart, you don't give her. And your time, you don't give her. And you don't make her feel special. And that's what Akash Baruch Hu is asking for. When he's asking for a person to build a mishkan, to build a relationship with him, yeah, you're going to stand there and say, I went to shul three times a day. I went to shul on Shabbos. I, I was sneers. I was a good girl. I did everything I was supposed to. I I damn shachris and mincha. Okay, sometimes on the train, sometimes in the house, whatever. Sometimes in the telephone. Oh, they don't have telephone booths anymore. Okay, whatever. And Hashem's like, that's true, but but you never gave me any time. You never spent two minutes at the edge of your bed crying or talking or asking or, or, or doing a mitzvah and saying, Hakadosh I'm doing this for you. There, there, are, there are, I don't know how many billions of people in the world. How many people do you think get up in the morning and say, God, what can I do for you today? Thank you that you gave me life, and I appreciate it. You're a good God. But how many of us get up in the morning and say, how can I be mekadesh, shem, shamayim for you today? How can the world... Can I make the world or person closer to you today, Hashem? Three people? Five people? I don't know five people. And that's all Akash wants. He says, I want to live in you. I don't want to live in your house. And I don't want to live in your shul. And I don't want to live in your base medrash. You're willing to be in the base medrash. And you put mezuzahs in your house. But I want more than that. I want to be 
with you. Like the, like, the, like the girl who's telling her husband, I know you do everything, but you're, you're not giving me any attention. You're not, you're not showing me love. You're going through all the motions. You're doing everything you have to do. <laughs> this week's Pasha's Truma is after we got the second Luchos. It's a question. A girl asked me in seminary this week. So when you get engaged... You buy the girl, the Kala, a ring. It's shown by all of you. The Karite. So, it depends on how much money the guy's making. Depends on the background of the people. But we're talking a ring, a diamond ring. It's got to cost you a thousand to somewhere from a thousand to sixty thousand dollars. Depending how big the ring is and if your parents put it away when you were born and how long, you know, depends. But from a thousand up to sixty thousand, maybe even more than that, but the norm is about five thousand dollars. Today, today I don't know. Diamonds are a little bit more expensive. When I was, when I was going out in BC, you know, many years ago, before cell phones, so the norm was from three thousand to five thousand dollars. That was the, that was the size of the diamond. So a guy gets engaged and he spends five thousand dollars on on this girl's diamond. Now, when he gets married, he, you're not allowed to give the girl under the chuppah when you say Hariyat Mekudeshesli. The ring has to be very plain, cannot have any stones on it. It's platinum or white gold. It's thin. It ranges from 100 to 150 bucks. Now, I don't understand. When you get engaged, you spend 40 grand. And that was just an engagement. Now, the ultimate, you're getting married, and you spend 120 bucks. Something's wrong. It should be the other way around. When you get engaged, you don't know if you're going to make it to the wedding. Spend 150 bucks. Buy her, buy her a bracelet. When you're under the chuppah already, you got to figure it's going to work out. You're saying, Harry, I'm a she should put her finger out. At this point, it's going to work out. They put a nice, fat diamond ring on her finger. Nope. $120 ring, and they show it to the Adim. has to be plain. A plain ring has to be worth a pruta. Just one penny. Now, what's up with that? Halacha is that a man can marry a woman with anything that's worth a shavu pruta. So, if you go over to a girl, you say, Harry, I with this lollipop, with this bag of wise potato chips that I bought for a quarter, with this piece of bubble gum that cost me a nickel, the Kedushin's good. A nickel? You can buy a woman with a nickel? With a quarter? The Gemara says, with a shavu pruta, which is a penny? What an insult, girls. You hear this religion that we have? A guy can buy you for a penny. See what you're worth? A penny. Right? Someone just said, disgusting. <laughs> it's so disgusting. But that's the halacha. All it has to be is shavu pruta. A loafer. A what? Loafer. Who's the loafer? You need a loafer for the penny. Oh, a loafer for the penny loafer. Right. I didn't hop. I didn't hop. They don't even know what a penny loafer is. They don't know what you're talking about. Right, I thought the guy's a loafer if he only spends a penny. So, so what's going on here? How can you accept that? Maybe that's why we don't let girls learn Gemara. Because if you learned that, you'd be all insulted. What? The guy can buy me, what am I? For a penny? You go to the pet store... And you buy a little bird, it's more than a penny. I'm more than a bird, right? So it's a very good question. 
So the answer is that since you're buying her, since it's a din of a Kenyan, when a man gets married, right, it's a din of a Kenyan, the Mishnah says a woman can be, you can, you can, you can buy a woman with three different things, so it's a Kenyan, you're buying her. Now, how do you put a price on, a, on the person that you love, that you want to marry on this other person, how do you put a price on that person? You can't. So it would be very insulting if we had different prices on the woman that you buy. One guy will say, okay, I'll buy her for 25000 I'll give 30, I'll give 40, right? One girl says, I'll give 20. So one girl's going to get married for 20 bucks. The other girl's going to get married for 20,000. It's going to be a big machlek is what's going on over here. So, so since there's, there's, you, the, the value of a woman is infinite, so when you buy her, when you make a kinyan on her, the Gemara says, just give a representation of the kinyan because you don't have enough money in the world to, to spend on buying another person. What? Right, well, I'm getting, I'm getting there. So, when you get engaged, so that's not a Kenyan. When you're getting engaged, right, you're not married to her. So you want to, you want to show her that you care about her, and then you want to buy her what we call takshitin, which is jewelry to make someone prettier and to make someone nicer. So you can buy a ring, and you can buy a bigger ring, and you can buy a smaller ring. But when you make a Kenyan on her, since she's worth infinite, and you can't, so the ring is just a representation of your feelings, and therefore, there's no value. So even though it's a hundred twenty dollar ring, it's it's screaming at her that if it was a sixty thousand dollar ring, then maybe that's her value, but she's definitely worth more than one hundred twenty bucks or a hundred bucks. So what you're saying to her is that this ring is just a representation of my love for you. It has no, there is no price. And in fact, anyone who's married, any woman in this room that's married, who got a diamond engagement ring and got a wedding ring, knows that if you lost your diamond ring you'd be very upset because of the value that it cost the diamond. But God forbid if you lost your wedding ring. That would make you absolutely crazy because you can't replace a wedding ring because you can't get married again. So a wedding ring, even though it's $120, they start getting crazy. I lost my wedding ring. Is that a sign we're going to get divorced? Is that a sign I'm going to die? Is that a sign that my marriage is no good? What do you mean? That's 120 bucks. That's not going to bother your marriage. If you lose the diamond ring for forty grand, then your marriage is not going to be so good. So, no, a wedding ring has has it's it's a it's a symbol, and a symbol you can be bought for very cheap. As I've spoken many times before, you know the famous story with the roses. The guy comes home on his twenty fourth anniversary with two dozen roses, and you know he walks in through the door, and his wife is all teary eyed and sensitive, and I can't believe that you remembered. I just told somebody, if you don't remember your wife's anniversary. It's going to come out that your anniversary in your yard site is going to be on the same day. <laughs> so you got to remember your wife's anniversary. Never forget it. So he comes on with 20 for two dozen roses, right? You're a poet. How romantic. You could write a whole poem on that, right? He remembered and he bought beautiful red roses or white roses. Oh, what a romantic guy. Let's break down this guy for a minute. He went to the store on Avenue N. A dozen roses is 10 bucks. He walked up and he spent $20. The woman's married to him, slaving for him for 24 years, and he went and brought her a $20 present. She should take those roses and whack him over the head with it. 24 years and you spent $20? No. She blushes, she runs, and she takes the vase, and she waters and she puts it in the vase, and of course she won't put it in the kitchen because it's her anniversary flower. She puts it in the living room or in the dining room. Everybody has to see it, right? Her beautiful roses. The guy spent... 20 bucks. Now, happens to be that this guy's friend 
has anniversary on the same day. And he asks his friend, Nu, what did you buy your wife? He says, two dozen roses. He says, how much was it? He says, 20 bucks. He says, wow, I'm going to show my wife I love her much more than he does. So he comes home, and his wife's sitting there. Nu, what did you get me for my anniversary? He opens his wallet, and he takes out 40 bucks, two $20 bills, and he says, you think, my friend thinks he loves his wife. No. I love you. And he gives her the 40 bucks. She says, what's this? What's this? Treasure hunt? It's going to have like a little thing on it where to take five steps, go upstairs, make a right? Like, what is this? He says, no. Chaim uh, spent 20 bucks on his wife. I would never do that to you. I figure I love you double. I give you 40. They take the money and she's going to throw it at him with a couple of dishes. And he's going to stand there dumbfounded. I don't understand. He went home, so he right away runs to the phone, figuring that if that's what happened to him, Nebuch, his poor friend, his wife, his wife, he only spent 20 bucks, is probably beating him over the head with these roses with the thorns, and he's bleeding and he's gushing. Because if he got that for 40 bucks, you can imagine what the other guy got for 20 bucks. He calls up his friend and says, Jose, oh man, we didn't spend enough. Is she killing you? He said, what are you talking about? We're on our way out for dinner. What are you talking about? She loved him. And he doesn't understand. I don't understand. I spent 40, and he starts arguing with his wife. Look at that marriage. Look at our marriage. And the answer is that flowers are a symbol. So when he gave her the 24 roses, to her, that wasn't her value. You're not worth 20 bucks. It's a symbol of how much I love you. I don't have the money. I don't have a billion, trillion, zillion dollars to give you. Flowers and roses is a representation of love. How much are they worth? Of course not the 20 bucks. But once he gives money, money has an intrinsic value. It doesn't have a symbolism. Money is not a symbolism. So he's giving her 40 bucks. He's telling her, you're worth 40 bucks. That's what he's telling her. And that's why she's throwing it back in his face. Even one rose. Guy, guy brings home one rose. And everyone gets all excited. It cost him two bucks. You remember, you brought me home a rose. It doesn't have to be a rose. It can be a carnation. Whatever it is, a flower. Because that's a representation. Kosh Baruch is telling us here that the, the Mishkan has a value. The gold and the silver and the copper and all this stuff, girls, was weighed. It had a certain amount of value. Kosh Baruch Hu said, it's very nice, but that's not what I want. I want the rose. I want your heart. I want your love and I want your care. All the other stuff and all the other mitzvahs it's very important. You gotta pay, you gotta pay the credit cards and you gotta pay the rent. And you gotta pay the heat, the electric bill, and the gas, or you're not gonna have electric, you're not gonna have heat. So the husband has to do that. That's the Mishkan part. But the love, the relationship, that's the heart. Tikhuath Chumasi, Hashem says, what I want from you is the Nadiv is the Nadiv Lev, is the person's heart. It's very, very interesting. It's a little I don't, you know, I was thinking if I should teach it to the girls and not teach it because it's really it's really a Gemara. But it's it's um, it's very very beautiful pshat that I saw this week on the Ba'asali Migdash for Shachanti Besaycham that Hashem wants to dwell in each each and every one of us. He says the following: There is a, a medrash, a conversation between David Melech and Hakadosh Baruch Hu. It's a Yalkut in Tehillim. It's in with David. When I put my sitter out, here it is. Okay, so. During the month of Elul, until, until after Shemini Atzeres, we say, you want my papers, okay? We say, 
L'David Hashem Ori after davening. Now, in L'David, it says the following. I'm asking you for one thing. I just want one thing. Just what I'm looking for. Shifti Hashem, I want to dwell in the house of God my whole life. To behold the sweetness of Hashem. And to be like a tourist in his heichol. He should protect me and, 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 and cover me uh, in the bad times. And he should protect me in his ohel. That's what David HaMelech asked Hashem. So, so the Medrash says that Hashem said to David HaMelech, one second, you asked me, uh, we're falling apart here. You asked me for one thing. Shifti Bebeis Hashem. You asked me to dwell in my house. And then you start asking me all kinds of other questions, all other things. You asked me to dwell in my house. Then you started saying, and protect me, and let me walk through your heichol, and let me see the sweetness. That's not fair. You asked me one question, and then all of a sudden, when I was giving you all the, 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 those things, you, you decide you're going to ask a hundred things. It's like, Daddy, can I, can I borrow your car? And uh, your credit card? And how about a hundred bucks? And um, your cell phone? You asked me for the car. You said, and you're going to ask for one thing. Now all of a sudden you're asking all these other things. So the Medrash says that Hashem said to David HaMelech, you started out by saying you want to ask for one thing. And now you started a whole list. I want to behold the sweetness of Hashem. I want to contemplate in his, in his base HaMikdash. I want him to hide me in the shelter. So Hashem said, that's not the way to do things. Ask for one and then add. You said, achas sho'alti. You asked me for one thing. So David HaMelech answered Hashem. Master of the universe, I'm sorry that you're so upset about this, but where did I learn how to do this? I learned it from you, said David HaMelech Hashem. I'm a good student. Why? Because in the Chumash, Hashem says, what does Hashem ask, what does Hashem your God ask of you but one thing, to fear Him? And then the Torah goes on and says, to fear Hashem your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve Him with all your heart and all your soul. Said Hashem, you asked one thing, you said I should fear, we should fear you. And then you added all the other things also. So I learned it from you. To ask for one thing, and then add all the other things also. So it's, an, it's a very hard measure to understand what's going on over here. So it's a little bit of a, of a, of a hard answer. I'm going to try to explain it to you. The, the, Gemara says, the Gemara says that there are four we call shaymrim. That if you give someone something to watch... Right? There are four kinds of shaman. One is a shaman chinam. Let's say I go over to you and I say, watch my phone. I'm not paying you. You're my friend. Watch my phone. That's called a shaman chinam. You're watching something for free. Then there's a thing called a shaman sachar. Watch my phone. I'll pay you $10 a day to watch my phone. That's a shomer, someone who's watching something. Sachar, but he's getting, he's getting paid. Then there's a shoel. Can I borrow your phone? I'm borrowing your phone. A shoel is someone who bothers. And then there's a seicha, a person who rents. Rent a phone, right? Those are the four kinds of, we call four kinds of shaman. Now, each one of them has a different halacha. If you watch something for free, you give me your phone for free, and I'm walking on the street, and a guy, if a guy comes to me, puts a gun to my hand, and says, give me that phone. So I am putter. I don't have to pay you back the phone. That's called geneva. Aveda, if I lose the phone, right? I lose the phone. I don't have to pay you back the phone. Ones, if lightning hits the phone and it burns up, just give me an example of a phone, I don't have to pay. So a shomechinam, 
The only time he has to pay for what he's watching is pshia. Because negligence, you took the phone, you threw it in the toilet. Hey, you got to get me a new phone. That's negligence. That's a shame of Shem Sachar has to pay on negligence and Geneva Veda. Since you're paying me to watch your phone, if someone steals it from you or you lose it, you're going to have to pay me back. I paid you to watch it, not to lose it or not to have it stolen from you. A showel, a person who borrows. I go out to my next door neighbor and I say, can I borrow your shovel? I want to shovel my walkway. I am chayiv no matter what happens. Lightning comes out and hits it, right? No matter what happens... I am chayef to give you back a shovel. It's stolen, it's lost, lightning hits it, it doesn't matter. Now, there are two ways that a shoel doesn't have to pay back. One is mesa machmas molacha. I borrowed your shovel to shovel the snow. I was shoveling the snow normally, and the shovel broke. Right? I didn't do anything unnormal. I didn't hit someone over the head with it. I was shoveling snow. So the halacha is, if it breaks while I borrow it, while I'm using it for the normal thing that I borrowed it, I'm not mechaev. For instance, I have this a lot in camp. You, you borrow a baseball bat, right, from your friend. You go to a game, and you hit the ball, and the bat cracks in half. And you come back, and the guy says, where's my bat? I'm like, it cracked in half. He says, you're going to go buy me a new bat. I'm like, no, I was just swinging at a ball, and it cracked in half. I do not have to break, bring him a new bat. But if I strike out, and I'm angry, and I take the bat, and I hit it against the ground, and it breaks in half... I have to pay. So when you use the object the way you're supposed to, and it breaks, you're not mechaev to pay back. <coughs> There's one other way that a shovel is putter. And that's called balav imo. I'm shoveling, and the owner of the shovel is standing there talking to me. And the shovel breaks while he's standing there talking to me. Actually, the way the Gemara talks about it is a cow. I borrowed a, a cow or an ox to plow my field. Right? And the owner of the ox that lent it to me is walking with me as we're plowing the field, and the ox drops dead. So the halacha is, in Baal of Imo, if the owner is with the item that was borrowed, you don't have to pay back. In Baal of Imo, if the owner is with the object and the person, you don't have to pay back. Unbelievable. So he says like this. What was David's, David HaMelech asking Hashem? Acha sha'altim eis Hashem. One thing I want is shifty bevesh Hashem. I should live in the house of Hashem. If you live in the house of Hashem, girls, if Hashem lives in you, then after 120 years, when you come up to Shemayim, and they say, we gave you a loan, your soul, and everybody has to bring back that soul. Everybody has to return that soul. But the halacha in, in being a shoyal is returning. You have to return the item the way you got it. You can't borrow a shovel and bring him back a bent shovel. Whatever item you borrow, you have to give him back the item the way you got it. If it's broken, then you're going to have to pay for it. If it's worth less because you, you did something to it, you're going to have to pay the difference. So Dabar HaMelech said, there's one thing I want from you, Hashem. I want to dwell in your house. I want you to dwell in me. Why? So after 120 years, so you come up there and Bezin says, We gave you this perfect, beautiful, clean soul, perfect without an Avera, and we lent it to you, as it says in the Mishnah in Perkei Avos. 
Hashem lends us our neshama, and then He takes it back. At a certain point, He takes it back. But in Shemayim, they say, you're not giving us back what we gave you. Chanelah. We gave you a perfect neshama. You're giving us back this filthy, twisted, ayveh, shmutzadika neshama. You're not giving us back what we lent you. It's got a problem. And a shoyel is chayiv. You're going to say, well, it wasn't my fault. You created me so beautiful, so all the guys hit on me. It wasn't my fault. Aynes. That's not my fault. You put me in this family. Aynes. Not my fault. You put me in a generation of Facebook and internet and all this filth. If I would have lived 200 years ago, I would have given you back the neshama the way you gave it to me. But you put me in this disgusting generation. Aynes. But it doesn't help. It doesn't help when you're a shayel. All these excuses, you're chayiv. Even if lightning strikes, you're chayiv. So all your answers, it's not my fault. The name of Aveda, the Satan stole my soul. I lost my soul. Hashem, it's not my fault. But Hashem says, yeah, but you're a shayel. And a shayel has to pay. Even when it's not your fault. Even when it's stolen. Even when it's an Aveda and it's lost. Even when it's Oynes. It's not an excuse when you're a shayel. So Melech. But if Hashem, if I live in the house of Hashem, if this world that I'm coming from, I was always in the house of Hashem. And Hashem was v'shechanti b'soicham. Hashem was in me. Then it's Baal of Imo in my whole life. The owner of the soul that lent it to me was always with me when I did those Averis. And the halacha is, in Baal of Imoi, if the owner is with you, you're potter. You're not chayiv. Even when the thing breaks and when the cow drops dead, if the owner is with you, you're potter. So Dovah HaMelech said to Hashem, I'm asking you one thing, that we and me and you, Hashem, should always walk together. And if we always walk together, then even when I mess up, I'm not chayiv. Because Balavimai. If Hashem is not there, if you live a life where God doesn't want to be with you, what kind of life is God? God always wants to be with you. Says Rashi, that person, you can, not Hashem, you can, but if a person eats chazer, if a person is Machal Shabbos, Every Aveira in the Torah, Hashem is there. Hashem is there. The one place that God's Shechina leaves and God's Shechina cannot be there is by Arayas. Is by immorality between a man and a, a man and a woman. There Rashi says the Shechina cannot rest. The Shechina cannot be there. Which means that in, in any Im- immoral act between a man and a woman not being Shemunigia when they're single, Yichud being in the room, flirting with married men, flirting with single men, all this stuff, all this immorality that's going on in our generation, that Yenushama will not be able to say, but you were with me, Hashem Ampater, because Rashi Beferisha says that when it comes to immorality, the Shekhin is not there. And if the Shekhin is not there, then the Baal is not Imo, and if the Baal is not Imo, then you're Chayiv even on Oynes. If you're talking to married men and you end up in a situation where you're forced into something, it's your fault. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu is not there. He's not in that mix. 
And therefore, there's no Baal of Imai. And therefore, even if you're an Oynes, you're not considered an Oynes because you shouldn't have been talking to that guy. And even if you're a Geneva Vaveda, you lost yourself. The Satan got you. But Balav is not Imai because Baruch is not there. And therefore, you're going to be Chayev to give back what you were given and you can't give it back and you're going to have to go through all the things that a person has to go through in the next world to make that neshama pure again so that you give back to Hashem what He gave you. And that's what David HaMelech asked. That me and you, Hashem, we should always be together in the same room. And then automatically, all the other things, he didn't ask for all the other things. Automatically, if we sit in the same house together, then I will be protected on the day of raw, on the day of judgment, the day that I'm in trouble. I will be protected. How will I be protected? I'll be protected because I will say, in Balavi, my Hashem, I know I messed up, but you're the owner of the, of the soul that you lent me, and you were there with me. And they'll let you go. But that's only, that's only if the person creates a base Hamigdash in their soul, in themselves, in their houses. Beis Hamigdash was a very holy place. A stranger was not allowed to walk into the base Hamigdash. If he walked into the base Hamigdash, he was Chayv Misa. What's the Zohar in our day in our houses? All the stuff that we bring into our base Hamigdash. All the schmutz and technology and all the stuff that we bring into our base Hamigdash. That's a Zohar. It doesn't belong there. Our house, you, every person in this room is a base Hamigdash. And you're the Kayin in this base Hamigdash. And in the person is the menorah and the Shulchan and the Aron. It talks about in the Zayah. Everybody has a menorah in themselves. Everybody has a Shulchan. Everybody has an Arna Kaidesh. Everyone has a Mizbeach. Each one of us. How dear we bring into that person. A czar, a stranger, or a tumah. That's what this week's parsha is about. And this happened right after the Kedushin. Because we know the last Pusik, it's very hard to understand, the last Pusik in the Torah. The last Pusik, which is the capsule of the whole Torah. The whole Torah has to be in the last Pusik. What does it say? Doesn't, the puzzle doesn't, what are you talking about? All the greatness that Moshe did in front of the eyes of the Bnei Israel. What did Moshe ever do that was great in front of the eyes of Bnei Israel? Kriyas Yamsuf, he didn't do Kriyas Yamsuf. Hashem did Kriyas Yamsuf. Matan Torah, Hashem did Matan Torah. Leaving Mitzrayim, Hashem took Christ all out of Mitzrayim. What is this plastic talking about? The last plastic of the Torah says, and all the greatness that Moshe Rabbeinu did in front of Bnei Israel. What did he ever do? He didn't do anything, Hashem did everything. It says Rashi, what was the greatness that the last Pasuk in the Torah is talking about the worst thing that ever happened to us. Says Rashi, the breaking of the Luchos. The last Pasuk in the Torah talks about Moshe Rabbeinu. He did that on his own. Hashem did not tell him, throw down the Luchos and break it. It was a decision that Moshe Rabbeinu did on his own. He decided on his own to break the Luchos. The last Pasuk in the Torah, Hashem says, Good move. I need maskim. I didn't tell you to do it, but I'm maskim that you did it. And that's how the Torah ends. On the worst, what, the worst Pusik. The Torah ends on Moshe broke the, broke, the, broke the Luchos. And the answer is that the Luchos was the ring. We were getting married by Matan Torah. There was a chuppah. Kafalem Hashem put the mountain over Klai 
And Hashem had to send us a ring. And that ring was the Ten Commandments, which was a representation of His love for us. It wasn't the whole Torah. It was the Ten Commandments He was coming down. And Moshe Rabbeinu came down, and what were the Jews doing? They were dancing in front of an avoid Zarah. They were married to Hashem, and they were committing adultery with another avoid Zarah. And Moshe Rabbeinu realized that if he gives the Jews the luchos, and he puts the ring on their finger, they're going to be married. And if the Jews are married, and they're dancing in front of an Egel, they're committing adultery. And the punishment for adultery is Misa. Is Misa. And the, the punishment for adultery of a Bas Kayen, of a Bas Kayen, what's the Misa that she gets? Sreifa. She gets burnt. Sreifa. And Kleisro was considered like Hashem was the Kayen. So Klai Yisrael, if they would have gotten the Luchos, would have been married to Hashem and committed adultery, would have been wiped off the face of the earth. So the last Pasuk Hashem says, Moshe Rabbeinu, you were brilliant. The ring never made it to the Kala. If a man from California wants to marry a girl from New York in the old days, and he couldn't get here, he could give a ring to a shliach and say, you give the ring in my name to this girl, put it on her finger in my name, and she's married. You can make a shliach. So, Moshe Rabbeinu was the shliach. He had the ring. He had the luchos. And Hashem didn't tell him not to give it. He said to myself, what am I going to do? And he give them the ring. Then they're married, and they're serving a, a, an ego. We're all going to get killed. So he broke the ring, and he never delivered it. So we weren't married. We weren't married. wasn't adultery. We weren't chayim misa. Now, at the end of Pashat Mishpatim, Hashem gives us the second luchos. Now, what does the chassan have to make sure... Well, after he gets married, he has to have a house. He's got to take his wife somewhere. Apartment, a house, rented, bought, whatever it is. He has to have a house. So right after the second luchos, says, Now we're married. Now we need to go home. Make me a house. <coughs> so people think, we all think when we go to the hotel, right? We, we all think, oh my gosh, look what we're missing. There used to be a base on Migdash, now we don't have a base on Migdash. Girls, I hate to tell you this, but when there was a base on Migdash, you could not go in. There was an Ezra's Nashim on the outside, but if you, if you weren't a man and you weren't a Kohen, right, even a man could not go in. Only a Kohen could go into the Kodesh. Only the Kohen Gadol could go into the Kodesh Kedashim. Today, you can get closer to Hashem than you could when the base on Migdash was. Because when there was a base Hamidash, the furthest you could get was to the Ezra's Nashim. Today, since Hashem is not in his base Hamidash, he's in each one of us. When there was a base Hamidash, he wasn't in each one of us. He was in the base Hamidash, and you came to the base Hamidash, and you could watch from afar. Now, every girl that's at Snua, and she's Tahar, and she's holy, because Baruch was living in her. And she's a Kohen. You could never get that close. In the Galus, Rav Shimshim Pinkus talks about this a lot, we're much closer to Hashem than we were in the Beis HaMikdash as individuals. As a nation, we had a Beis HaMikdash. But as individuals, we're much closer today. But Hashem does not live in Tumah. So we need to be Tahar. And we need to prepare within ourselves a house that He could live in. And that's this week's Pasha. That's, that's for Asali Midrash, for Shechanti B'Seichem. That's Pasha's Truma. There's a book 
which, you know, I don't recommend that many books because I know you all run to the stores then. But there's a book that I got from actually my girls, my daughter's school in Missouris. Um, it's on the Holocaust. It's called Witness to History. You must. Every single person who's listening to my share tonight and watching my share, you must go tomorrow and you must buy this book. It is a book about the Holocaust. I have never read a book written this well. And to understand the Holocaust and to get a feeling of what it was all about, you have to read this book from one end to the other. To read it on Shabbos, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not a very happy book. I'm not going to tell you that. But it's something that it's a must read. And it's written by, I believe, the woman who runs the Hamodia. I think her name is Ruth Lichtenstein. She's the editor-in-chief. It's not normal. You have to read it. It's called Witness to History. So, when I started reading this book, well, actually, when I was at the, towards the end of the book, I got very angry. I didn't get angry at Hashem. I got angry at myself. And I got angry at our generation. Because every week I get all these phone calls and I meet people who want me to prove that there's a Hashem and how do you know there's a Hashem and how could God be really God if there was a Holocaust? I find it very funny that the the generation, our generation, who wasn't in the Holocaust, we're asking, how could there be a God if there was a Holocaust? And the people who died, who lost their whole families in the Holocaust, they're not asking that question. We're asking the question. We didn't go through nothing. Hashem, go home, air conditioning and the heating, refrigerator and the freezer, lights on, lights off, with a car, you know, and in the car, air conditioning and heating. You want to go to Eretz Yisrael. You read in the book about the boats that went from, from the Holocaust in Europe to Israel, six weeks on the water with no food, all types of diseases. They didn't complain. They couldn't wait. They got off in Eretz Yisrael. Amazing. We go on an LL 777. Every person has a screen in front of them. They get to eat. They get to drink. There's a bathroom that flushes. Not like on the boats. Those kind of bathrooms. You get on. You get off. On the way to Israel, it's nine hours. Not four weeks. Nine hours. And then when you get off and you get any luggage, I hear this trip... There's a couple of girls, because I guess it's been, uh, you know, it's, um, you have off now. So there's a lot of girls on the plane, and boys going to Israel, and they're talking, and they're complaining that the food in regular class was disgusting. Nine hours! You got on a plane, air-conditioned, you watched movies for nine hours, and you're getting off, and all you know how to do is complain, complain, complain. This generation, all they know how to do is complain, I'm depressed, I have no life, it's disgusting, I can't understand the Holocaust. Ms. Sugar, you can't understand the Holocaust. You didn't go through nothing. You're living a beautiful life. And you want to get rid of Hashem because you don't understand the Holocaust. But the people in the Holocaust, they were fine with God. The suffering that those people went through and didn't complain and still don't complain. And we, nothing's good enough. Just fetching. A bunch of kvetches, a generation of kvetchers, professional kvetchers. Stuff that no one would even think about kvetching. We kvetch, including me. Nothing's good. I want a window seat. I want an aisle seat, sure. 
on the boat, yeah, that went there to Israel, they had window seats and aisle seats. They were dying. Starvation, but they're window seats. We're crazy. We're out of our minds. We're spoiled brats. We, I'm talking about me. It's a generation of spoiled brats who just complain about everything. Their parents, their friends, their school, God, their religion, their food, everything. Think about it. Go through a day. We crutch about everything. Nothing's good. And we have everything. There's nothing that this generation is missing. They even up the speed limit for this generation. <laughs> 65 instead of 50 when I was growing up. You can even go 15 miles an hour faster. And beautiful cars. The, the Jews, so this, this kid that I was talking to yesterday, he says to me, I don't know, Hashem doesn't, Hashem doesn't do any more miracles. I think he's dead. <laughs> because some, some people in college, they're teaching that, that God created the world, and then either he died, he was in some big war, and the Greeks with Zeus and Venus and the whole Hevra had a big wall, Hercules, and he got it, and that was it, and they're all dead. So, so the world is on automatic, you know, like on El when they say, Hakoba automatic, you know, everything's on automatic, everything's going on automatic, God is gone. So he says, you know what, Rebbe, I think God's dead. I think he was, he was really cool. You know, he did the Kriya Siyamsov thing, and Ten Commandments, he took us out of Mitzrayim, then all of a sudden he doesn't do anything anymore. He, right? So he must be dead. If you have someone that does something, doesn't, there's no miracles. The Yam doesn't split. Right? There's no crazy miracles. The sun doesn't stop in the middle of the sky. He's had great stories in the Torah. And I believe him. He told me. I believe it. But in the last 2,000 years, I think he's either on vacation. You know, he went to another constellation that was a little warmer. Like he needs a vacation, you know, in, in, in Florida. So Hashem either took vacation. And many religions believe that. He created this world and he left. He just left it on automatic. We're all on automatic. I said, are you crazy? He said, the miracles that Hashem does in our generation, way, way beyond what he did in Kriyas Yamsuf. In the Nisim of Kriyas Yamsuf, the Medrash says, one here, a big Nisim, that happened in Kriyas Yamsuf, one of the big Nisim, the water froze. Hey man, go to my house, check out my freezer. <laughs> I got frozen water in my freezer. Big miracle. But in those days, they didn't have freezers. So to them, the Medrash wrote, it's a huge miracle. The water between each shavit froze. How does water freeze when it's not below 32? Today, big deal. Every kid fills up an ice tray. You don't even know what that means anymore because they don't even have those anymore. You push a button and it goes, and all the ice comes out into your cup. You don't even know what that means to make ice. I should make ice? Chaim, make ice. Make nice? No, make ice. Make nice? What does make ice mean? Who knows what make ice mean? When I was a kid, take that metal tray, Right? You have to fill it up. And then you have to make sure it was exactly flat so it didn't fall over. So not everything else got frozen, right? And then you had that metal thing you pulled in the middle that cracked it all. You remember that? It was like Gansom ice. And then the ice went flying all over the thing. You had to make new ice. You guys don't even know what I'm talking about. Hey, you want ice patty? No problem. Takes the glass. What shape do you want them? Little pieces? Big pieces? What kind of shape do you want them? Right? Right? So one of the big miracles the Medrash says is that water turned to ice and it wasn't, 30, it wasn't below 32. Every single day we do it. We do it, we, we, we do it even better than they did it. Imagine if they would see a slush machine. Different flavors. Lemon, cherry, strawberry ice. They would have freaked out. Another big miracle, says the Medrash. From one side of the Yam, this is a big miracle. I think this was number four. From one side of the, of the Yamsuf, 
They were broken into 12 different lanes. To the other side of the Yamsuf, one Jew could talk to the other. Wow. How far is it? A mile? We pick up a phone and I call my, I can call anyone in Israel in one second right now, 5,000 miles away. You're getting excited? They could talk from one side of the Yamsuf to the other? I could talk from one side of the world to the other. The miracles that we have today that the Satan put on the sign technology is much greater than anything if they would have seen while they're walking through the Yamsuf some huge 747 flying with 350 people on a, on a plane that weighs 10,000 tons, they would have said, Mashiach's here. Kanfei <laughs> Nisharim, on the wings of eagle. We get all excited about flying on the wings of eagles. We need, we, we need eagles. We got jets. So the technology that we have today would have flipped out the Jews by Kriyas Yamsuf. One nuclear bomb. One nuclear Sancherev. You read the story of Sancherev. How many soldiers did he have surrounded Yushalayim when they woke up the next morning they were all dead? 10,000? I don't remember the, I don't remember the Novi. 100,000. We got a bomb. Sancherev? You're Tinker Toys. We got a bomb. We drop it. We can kill 100 million people in one shot. We're much bigger than, than what happened in Sancherev. Shimshon, a gibor, he hit two, and a building came down? Those behemoths took down two World Trade Centers. Much bigger. So what happened in our generation is that Kishbuk was making much bigger miracles. You can be in Israel in nine hours. Much bigger miracles. Talks about many times that they had Fitzah Saderach, what was supposed to take three days, took one. That's called Kritzah Saderach. How long would it take you by foot from here to Israel? How many years? <laughs> it takes you nine hours. That's much bigger Kritzah Saderach than any Kritzah Saderach you'll find in the Torah. But that's not Hashem. That's a plane. That's not Hashem. That's my freezer. That's not Hashem. That's my cell phone. That's right. Kishbochu hid himself in all our technology. But who gave us this technology? You think as human beings we're smarter than the human beings that were here 2,000 years ago? They were a lot smarter. We don't have Tanom and Amaram anymore. They were a lot smarter. There's no one in this generation that's as smart as the Vilna Gain. They were a lot smarter. How come they didn't have internet? Because it wasn't the time that Hashem wanted it here in this world. Everything that we have is you're going to get out, you're going to walk out here and get into a car and drive home, which would normally take you to walk eight hours. It's going to take you 12 minutes. And you're going to pick up your phone and you're going to call somebody that's miles and miles and miles across the world. And it's going to take one second for that ring to happen. That's greater than any miracle you're going to read in the Torah. Frogs, give me a break. That's nice frogs coming out of the water, but we got stuff that's way ahead of that. But what did HaKadosh Baruch Hu do? He hid himself in this technology. But he's here. He didn't go to sleep. Just the opposite. We're way ahead in miracles every day. Turning on a light and everything that we do. Way ahead of the people that had to light a candle and had a miracle every once in a while. 
We have a miracle every second. Forget about medicine. The miracle of medicine, you have a headache, and you take a pill. People had a headache 100 years ago, 200 years ago, they couldn't get rid of it. They had pneumonia, they died. They had fever, they were close to death. You take two stupid pills, and your temperature goes from 104 to normal. Do you know what's going on in those pills? You know what it's doing in your body? Kishboku gave us the das to get rid of a headache, to get rid of temperature, antibiotics. Kishboku came down to this world and he gave us the biggest present. Antibiotics. You had strep, you died. There was nothing that could stop strep. You go to the doctor, he puts a little cuticle in your mouth, a little tree grows, boom. You take an antibiotic, you know anything, you spend, you're covered, you pop the pill in your mouth, and it's gone. Bronchitis is gone. Pneumonia is gone. Do you turn around to Hashem and say, wow, what a miracle? A hundred years ago, it wasn't gone. <coughs> person breaks a bone, and they put it in a cast. Two hundred years ago, there was no cast. A thousand years ago, if you couldn't see, there were no glasses. You couldn't see the rest of your life. All these things that Kishboku gave us as human beings, as a present, we call it technology. So we, we shoo him away. Oh, is he alive? He is more involved in the world than he ever was. There are more miracles in the world than they ever were. Let me dwell in you. Let me dwell with you. All I want is your heart. And that's the one thing no one is giving him. So I'd like to read, I have a hundred stories, but it's late. I'd like to read two stories from this book, from the Holocaust, about girls, about women. And one book is, one story I really want to read because one of the things that's taking a big hit this generation is Kivit of Aim. So, I'm going to lift it up a little. It's about a girl. And I'm sorry if this causes anyone any pain. But we have to understand, what, it, what does it mean, I'm, I'm sorry, but I got old, so, and I won't wear bifocals. So. What does it really mean to give your heart to Hashem? So this is a story about a girl named Mala, M-A-L-A. Mala Zimitbaum was a young, deeply religious, and fluent in ten languages, a rising star in the Jewish community of Antwerp, Belgium. When the Germans entered Belgium, armed with guns, swastikas, and ominous new laws, Mala's father knew that his only daughter, then in her 20s, must be hidden far away from this new danger. Posing as a non-Jewish private music tutor, Mala moved in with a kind, non-Jewish family. So she was, she was very, very talented. She was very, very religious. And she may believe that she was a Goyesha music teacher. One day, in a moment of seeming solitude, she thought she was by herself, she softly sang the Kol Nidre, the most haunting Yom Kippur song to herself. Abruptly, she grew aware of her hostess in the doorway, mouth agape, because they didn't know that she was a Jew. In the adjacent room was a visitor to her host family, a teacher in the gymnasium. Now he entered the room smiling as the melody's echo hung in the tense air. So she made a mistake, so to say, by singing this Kol Nidre. And the Goyim recognized that she was a Jew. Ah, my daughter, don't worry. I'm a good Christian, friend of all the downtrodden. That song, so terribly sad, so Jewish in its sadness, he paused. 
I know your secret, my dear Jewish friend, but don't fear. It is safe with me. That night, the Gestapo arrived. They beat her violently until she bled, and then they sent her to Auschwitz. In the camp, Mala's language skills convinced the Nazis that her life was worth preserving. Appointed as a translator for the Germans at Auschwitz, she relayed their messages to Kapos, hailing from many different countries. It was a privileged job. But Mala shared her extra food and favors with those worse off than her. She smuggled food to the prisoners who were wasting away, arranged for better working conditions for some, spirited medicine to those who were too weak to survive, and warned of upcoming selections in the sick ward. There was another side to Mala. She was, re- she was secretly working with the resistance, passing them arms and information. February 25th, Rosh Chodesh Adar, by the way, one of the reasons that I'm reading the story tonight is that Mitzvah Hashem tomorrow night is Rosh Chodesh Adar Rishon. Um, Rosh Chodesh is Friday and Shabbos. This story happened on Rosh Chodesh Adar in 1944. So they, they did the, um, they used to, Germans used to have all the women come out and count them every few hours to make sure no one escaped. But one person was missing from the women's camp when they did the count, Mala. A search was organized and a note was found on Mala's bed. I cannot live amongst murderers. I must go out and tell the world what you are doing to my people. So she escaped from the concentration camp and she was the one that was going to tell the whole world what was really going on in Auschwitz, which would have been big. The Germans went wild. A massive hunt was launched. Two weeks later, the entire camp was summoned to an emergency gathering. Mala had been found. Surrounded by armed Nazis, she was brought before the rows of Jews and accused of crimes against the Reich. An officer, his well-fed form dwarfing the frail Jewish woman, said to her, If you beg forgiveness, you will be forgiven. Never, said Mala, I will never give up. I will never try, I will never stop trying to escape. Never stop trying to tell the world what you are doing. And then she turned and cried out, her voice rising, it is upon all of us to rebel and not to, not to be content with the situation. I know well the schemes of these evil doers. Yet, my father taught me, if one comes to kill you, strike first and kill him. So the Germans decided to hang her in front of everyone to teach the other Jewish women not to do this. As the hangman set up his noose, the Nazis tried to beat her into silence. The crowd erupted with pleadings for mercy, begging for Mala's life. Mala looked at the other women, her people, and she said, now I am going to die, but I will live on forever in the hearts of the women of Israel. And then from nowhere... She pulled out a razor blade and cut her own wrists. God will forgive me, she cried as she lifted her arms, blood spilling from the gaping slits. And you too, my friends, my people, you too must forgive me. She fell bleeding, but somehow still alive. The Germans were furious. She must be kept alive, the chief officer yelled wildly. She must be kept alive. She must be hung. She must be kept alive. She has to be hung alive. They raced her to the hospital, her life draining from her. What happened next is unclear. Some witnesses say she died immediately and was sent to the crematorium. Some say she was sent to the crematorium while still alive. The Sander Commando, who staffed the crematorium, refused to burn her 
And only the hardest of German threats compelled them to do that terrible task. But before she died, Mala had begged for one last favor. So when I spoke to the boys last night, I said, we have so many questions on our Kodesh Baruch Hu, so many questions on Hashem, and so many questions about Judaism, so many questions. And look at this girl. She had no questions. She just said, everyone needs to know what these Nazis are doing. And she made a decision not to be hung in front of her sisters. So she had one question before they threw her into the furnace. She had one request. What could that request be? Could that request be? What could she ask for? Didn't she give up on HaKadosh Baruch Hu at this point? No. She asked for one thing. That night, they dug a hole and buried her ashes. Mahler received a Jewish burial in Auschwitz. One of the very few who did. Even when dead, she broke the rules of Auschwitz. When I finished reading the story, I got a phone call about an hour later from a girl who was very unhappy with life and depressed and in a, in a very in a bad way. And like for a second, I said to myself, "What are you crutching about? That your parents are not perfect? That your teachers are not perfect? And you're bored? You're bored? That's a big word today. I'm bored." Look at this girl. Look at what she went through. Not a word! Where's Hashem? Why Hashem? We're asking questions on the Holocaust. But they had no questions. And one of the big things, and the reason I'm going to read you the next story, there's a lot of stories here, but one of the big things that is the cause of a lot of the stuff that our generation is going through is this huge rift. I'm not going to blame it on a group of people, but I have a group of people in mind that parents are blamed for everything. And that this society today has broken down the relationship of an Abba and an Ima, of a mother and a father. And a mother and a father can't say what's on their mind, that they're abusive and they're terrible parents, and every parent feels so guilty. Every time their kid goes off to derech or does something wrong, they blame themselves. And those same kids who are causing their parents their anguish have absolutely no remorse, nothing, because everyone's telling them that it's not your fault, it's your parents' fault, and it's your rabbi's fault, and it's adults' fault. But kids are perfect, and you know, and, and, and you, you know, you go for help, and they tell you, they, 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 they write a list for, Give me five things your parents need to change about the way they treat you. Oh, sure. I would have come home to my father with that list. Here, Dad, I have a list of five things you need to change. Yeah, I'll change. Instead of hitting you with my left hand, I'll hit you with my right hand. That's the number one change. The kibbutz of aim in our generation doesn't exist. It has been destroyed. Parents are the enemy. They're the enemy. They're despised and they're hated. And they do everything for their children. And this whole generation despises our parents. We, we just expect them to give and to give and to give. But don't tell me how to live and don't tell me what time to come home. And you have a 13-year-old girl who wants to stay up till 4 o'clock in the morning and her parents are abusive because they want her home at 11.30 like a normal human being. No, I want to be out till 4 o'clock. My parents are disgusting. Your parents are great because they let you stay out till 4 o'clock. Because they just go to sleep. And they let you do whatever you want. Those are the good parents. And the parents who care, evil evil people.
So I'd like to read you a story about parents in the Holocaust. And I'll leave you with this. Ah, this was a different generation. We're fetching. They got killed and maimed. They said nothing. And we're just so sad. We're having such a tough life. Nebuch. This is written by Ilana Nachshoni. And she, she says the following. I remember clearly my mother, brother, and myself, around seven years old, sitting in a room. We had to run. But to go together as a family was dangerous for all of us. It was likely to raise suspicions. A Polish friend of my mother's offered that my brother could work on the farm of friends of hers. Mother would go wherever she could. As they would leave me on the street, perhaps someone would take in this little girl in the hope that after the war we would all meet again. My brother was the one entrusted to leave me on the street. So they made up to leave this little girl on the street, hoping that somebody would adopt her and she'd make it through the war. But they didn't want to stay as a family because they figured if they get caught, they're all going to be killed. Snow. December. Terrible cold. They leave a girl on the street. But even before this in the room, they told me repeatedly, never forget that you're a Jew. But to be careful not to tell anyone. No one knew what would happen. They dressed me. Now, this is her mother. They dressed me and placed a cross around my neck so that whoever would find her would think that she's not Jewish. I remember this. So this lady who made it out of the war says, I remember this, but I don't remember how mother said goodbye to me. Did she hug me? Did she kiss me? Did she cry? I don't remember. And neither does my brother. Today, this is a much older woman, this is just written, so she's probably in her 80s. Today, this is what disturbs me tremendously. She went through the Holocaust. She watched millions of people die. She lost everything. And at 80 years old, she writes that from the whole Holocaust, from everything that happened, 6 million Jews, starvation, the one thing that bothers me is I don't remember when I separated from my mother that she hugged me and that she kissed me. And every single day, we leave our house and we don't kiss our mother and we don't hug our mother and it really doesn't bother us one drop if she kissed me or she hugged me or she said she loved me ugh you're weak if you need a kiss from your mother or a hug from your mother how many times I've seen in situations where a mother would go over to a daughter to give her a hug and she'd move away get away from me you do we need another Holocaust? Is that what we need? To realize what we have? That we have parents, Baruch Hashem? That we don't have to think that she hugged me, that she kissed me before she died? Every single morning you can get a hug and a kiss from both your parents or from one of your parents if you're lucky enough to have parents. It's a generation of I'm not happy with anything. Read this book, everybody. Read this book. It'll reconnect you to the real world. We're living in a fake world. It's time to It's time to build that base Hamidish back, each one of us, and to have our Kurdish dwell within us. And stop with all the fetching and stop with all the nonsense. And maybe in that's Khus, Taka Kurdish will build the base Hamidish 
and we'll see Mashiach Bimheyev Yameinu Amen. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.